This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the recent trend of white nationalist and white power-related violence, the history of where it's coming from, and why the U.S. government does next to nothing to combat it. Clips today come from Intercepted, The Chauncey DeVega Show, The Breakdown with Sean King, Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, and Frontline. In the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, there was an immediate uptick in anti-Muslim rhetoric, hate crimes spiked, and the U.S. went to war against, quote, radical Islamic terrorism. Nearly two decades later, this spin has become, in the eyes of many U.S. political figures, set-in-stone policy, a view that ultimately leads to the demonization of Islam as a religion. We have in Donald Trump a president who has openly espoused sympathy for white supremacists. He has attempted to ban Muslims from entering the United States because they are Muslim. And he said he supports the killing of the families of suspected terrorists. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. You have to take out their families. When you get these terrorists, you have to take out their families. They they care about their lives. Don't kid yourself. But they say they don't care about their lives. You have to take out. Trump doesn't talk about all victims equally. And he has consistently refused to apply the gutter talk that he engages in when the shooter is a Muslim to white people who commit acts of terrorism or when the victims are Muslims. In fact, Trump consistently denies the very facts that the whole world is witness to, including the fact that extremist white supremacist violence is on the rise. But not all of those people were neo-Nazis, believe me. Not all of those people were white supremacists. I think there's blame on both sides. You look at you look at both sides. I think there's blame on both I, sides. I got the white supremacists, the neo-Nazi, I got them all in there, let's say. Yeah. KKK, we have KKK. I got them all. So they're having a hard time. So what did they say, right? It should have been sooner. He's a racist. It should have been sooner. Okay. So it should have been... This type of rhetoric coming from the president of the United States is not to be misunderstood. White supremacy is being actively defended and justified by this administration. And let's be honest, confronting right-wing violent extremism and white supremacist violence and terror are not a U.S. priority. Here's former FBI counterterrorism agent Ali Soufan on the resources allocated to fighting white supremacy. We see an increasing threat emerging in the United States and in Europe. Uh, However, far fewer resources are devoted to combating this threat, at least in the United States. I think our uh, European partners have been focusing on that more. However, unfortunately, in the United States, law enforcement, the FBI, uh, joint terrorism task forces have been doing a good job, but it's local in nature. It's not part of a wider federal conversation that's happening in Washington on how to deal with these kind of things. To kick off today's show, we're going to look at the bigger picture of how Islamophobia and the way that Muslim lives are discussed in the aftermath of these mass killings. There's a pattern emerging where the thoughts and prayers offered for Muslims is increasingly followed by a but. And it is what comes after that, but that my first guest argues we must recognize and confront. 
Nasreen Malik is a columnist for The Guardian newspaper in London. Nasreen, welcome to Intercepted. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, in The Guardian, you wrote a piece titled, Until Christchurch, I Thought It Was Worth Debating with Islamophobes, Not Anymore. What struck you about this massacre at these two mosques and the way that it's talked about in broader society? There was something distinctly different about the response to this one in terms of the mainstream press and commentary. And the main distinction was that people immediately began, not everyone, of course, but those that usually are not sort of the thoughts and prayers type contingent, immediately tried to come out with tempering language and saying this is a terrible thing, but we must we must not allow this to chill us from criticizing Islam or Muslims. And I thought that was really unusual. I hadn't really seen that before. It was a response that was usually restricted to the right-wing press in the UK in particular, but it had become a mainstream position in the, along with the sympathy and the kind of condolences. There was an immediate chaser to that, which is, but let's not let this get in the way of legitimate concerns and criticism of Islam. You're obviously in London right now. How has the anti-Islam or anti-immigrant rhetoric and the policies, how, how have they taken shape in the UK over the last years or even decades? It's been remarkable, actually, how quickly things have changed, even when one knew that they were going to change. I've been writing for about 10 years now before Islamophobia became fashionable it was sort of an online troll position where people coalesced around new atheists and Richard Dawkins and Bill Maher in, in the US as well. There is a sort of strange, lefty, liberal, atheist Islamophobia. Is it a religion of peace? You know, I don't know. I, I, I have not read the Koran uh, in its original. When you read the translation, there are many, many, many passages that are not peaceful at all that are about killing the infidel and so forth. There are many passages like that in the Bible too, not as many, and we don't take it seriously. That's the difference. We blow off our religions. And it then escalated very quickly and the velocity increased, I would say in the past five years where we've gone from Islamophobia being something you saw on online forums, on comment threads below the line on articles, and on kind of slightly quirky debating programs to mainstream politicians, mainstream columnists, mainstream news programs that would host Islamophobic figures. So very quickly, it has become a kind of integrated part of mainstream popular culture. And parallel to that, there was a, a hardening of immigration policy by the Conservative government over the past 10 years under the leadership of Theresa May when she was head of the Home Office. We want to ensure that only legal migrants have access to the labour market, free health services, housing, bank accounts and driving licences. And this is not just about making the UK a more hostile place for illegal migrants, it is also about fairness. And that anti-immigration ideology, which is very much a right-wing Conservative Party ideology, became tied into Islamophobia as well. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, and there were several, this piece that you wrote in The Guardian, and I know that you've been coming under fire, uh, but also I think a lot of people really appreciated you saying what needed to be said. And I just want to read the opening line of this for people and ask you to expand on it. You write, if you've been paying attention, you'll know that there is now a genre of response protocol 
that has followed after attacks on Muslims. It blows dog whistles even as carnage is unfolding. A ghoulish routine has become established. In this particular instance, I was speaking about the kind of prestigious, what we call the broadsheets in the UK, not the tabloids, and their representatives in the television and radio punditocracy. And that response is always, this is a terrible thing, but there is always a but. There is always a qualification, either that the attacker was someone who was isolated that we cannot link to any other wider phenomenon. So to trivialize and minimize the issue or to say, but we have to remember that the original and bigger problem is Muslims and immigration and Islamic terrorism. And so it's a condemnation of the attack and then an immediate dilution of the condemnation. And that serves two purposes. It just removes victimhood from Muslims and says, well, maybe these particular Muslims didn't have it coming, but some Muslim somewhere does. And these ones just kind of, you know, we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. But the second thing it does is that it makes it very hard for people to pin down Islamophobic sentiments because they did say this is terrible. They did condemn it. There's one particular pundit in the UK who spent three hours on her radio show talking to relatives of victims and in the same breath came on social media and said, but we have to remember, you know, this is not Islamophobia because Islamophobia is about chilling criticism of Islam. So these two things at the same time means that people reserve the right to be Islamophobic while speaking in a forked tongue about it, which makes talking to them incredibly difficult because they're not being honest. The 74-page manifesto of a uh, so-called manifesto of this gunman makes reference to Anders Breivik, the Norwegian mass shooter, and his manifesto, and then Dylan Roof, who killed nine people in a black church in South Carolina. What are your thoughts on the transnational elements of what this shooter had in his so-called manifesto, but also the, the linkage between these seemingly unconnected individuals and the way we talk about them as lone wolves. So this is something I think has blindsided people, and they're just beginning to come to terms with the fact that this is a far more organized global movement. And I think that the reason for that is purely because White people who fixate on identity politics of other pe of others don't see themselves as motivated by identity concerns. And if there is a Muslim terrorist or if there is a black terrorist or there's a brown terrorist, his or her motivations are in always ascribed to this very coherent ideology because others, non-white people, others have barbaric, backward religions and ideologies that they function on, that they are motivated by. But the perception that white people can be motivated by the same things, and it's the remarkable the similarity between the sort of self-aggrandizing narratives of Islamic radical martyrdom and now militant white supremacist martyrdom. The fact that, you know, these two are similar blows people's minds because, you know, white people are just a bit more evolved than that. And if you look at the, the similarities, particularly striking over the past uh, couple of years with the internet, is that what motivates a lot of Islamic radicalism, particularly with young men, is this sort of being held aloft as a martyr or a hero and being eulogized. 
And this is exactly what these white supremacist assassins and killers want. You know, they have organized manifestos, they record videos, they really enjoy the aftermath of it all. There is a religious aspect to it, which is you become a warrior in service of a group cause. But we don't analyze things in that way because, you know, other people are lesser and less evolved and have these motivations. Whereas white people are more evolved. And if they do behave that way, it must be some like isolated nut job. And this is where the fixation on identity politics, particularly on the left, really frustrates me because I'm just like, it's all identity politics. And if anything, white identity politics has been turned a blind eye to. There's statistics actually that over the past 20, 30 years, that the FBI has allocated, you know, a huge amount of money to fighting Islamic radicalism and almost none to fighting right-wing white supremacist activism or activity. And there was a report in the New York Times about six months ago saying we missed it. Despite repeated warnings over the past two decades, federal law enforcement officials have ignored the threat of violence from right-wing extremists. Now, they have no idea how to stop it. And now they kind of can't contain it. But it wasn't only the authorities that missed it. The media missed it as well. But here's a question, and I know it sounds morbid, Why is any of this surprising at this point? Not to minimize the horror of mass murder, but given the political environment, Trump, Fox News, how these folks have been organizing for years. I heard about it. I was on the bus going home after seeing a movie. And I was like, okay, another massacre. And you just sort of, it's an exhalation. You know, we're tired, but. We're surprised or at least shocked every time because the natural thing that human beings, I think, want to do in the midst of tragedy, right, is try to find some normalcy and try to find decency. And when you're confronted with how monstrous and how horrific people can be, you want to try to convince yourself for any number of psychological reasons, including self-protection. You just want to feel safe. You try to project this image of normalcy and the idea that, well, those people are outliers. They're not the norm. Most people are good. And and yet, you know, the reality is two things can be true at once, right? Most people can be good uh, and most people can be people who would never do anything like this. And yet an awful lot of people can do these things. And even more terrifyingly and, and more disturbing for us is a lot of people who most days are decent people. They're nice to old people and animals and children. They aren't cruel and horrible people. Most of the time, they're pretty normal. But under certain circumstances, they can be driven to the kinds of horrific actions that we see in places like New Zealand or in Charleston or in Quebec or in Pittsburgh with the Tree of Life synagogue shooting or in Wisconsin with Sick Temple shooting several years back. Wade Michael Page wasn't born a horrible monster. I don't think that this guy in the New Zealand shooting probably was born this natural born killer or terrorist. These people are made. There was a time before they were like this. And what's scary about that is it reminds us of how 
easily. Otherwise, previously decent human beings can do horribly indecent things. And so I think so as to guard against recognizing that and sort of protect ourselves from real horror that is humankind in a way, we try to act like, okay, okay, that, you know, that was a horrible thing, but it won't happen again. Okay, okay, it won't happen again. And then, of course, it does happen again. And, and we're shocked because we wanted so badly to believe that these were outlier events. So last night I was up to like four in the morning. I was like, I got to get this out there, you know? So I wrote that salon piece and I started making a list of all the examples of Trump encouraging violence and explicitly encouraging racism or his policies. I had dozens and dozens of examples. It's like, you could do this all day and all night. And yet you have these folks who no matter what happens, this monster literally mentioned Trump in the manifesto. They still deny Trump has any responsibility. I mean, is there anything that Trump is ever responsible for? Because that's a manifestation of white privilege too. Yeah, they never want him to be responsible for anything. Again, if Obama or any president had ever done half of the kinds of things that he has done to encourage violence, actually telling, you know, rally goers, go ahead and beat up the protesters, I'll pay your bills. We would have talked about it forever. They would have been blamed every single time. And so, no, they don't want to hold him responsible. As you said, the manifesto mentions him. I actually had a tweet today from, you know, someone responding to my tweets on this subject, trying to, again, sort of give Trump cover from this thing. Now, this individual, I will point out, was horrified by the massacre and said it was terrible. But he goes out of his way to say, first, he says, Trump has repeatedly condemned hate hatred and terrorism of all kinds, which A, is not true, B, belies the fact that he has never called out white racist terrorism by name. He has never called out right wing even, just take the white out of it, even just right wing terrorism. He won't use that phraseology, this coming from a guy who insisted, as did all conservatives, that Barack Obama say the words radical Islamic terrorism. They won't do it when it's white people. They won't do it when it's uh, putative Christians. They won't do it when it's people on their side. But then this guy who was tweeting at me also said, you know, the mention of Trump is really vague. And he actually criticizes Trump as a you know, not a very good leader. Well, of course, what the actual wording is, this guy who committed this massacre said that Trump was a symbol of renewed white identity and common purpose. And then, you know, he sort of made it like a dialogue with himself, asked whether he thought that Trump was a good leader. He said, oh, good Lord, no. But what the person tweeting at me missed in this is, first of all, when you say he's symbolic of renewed white identity and common purpose, you're saying you have a common purpose with him. You have a common identity with him. You see him, he sees you, and you're fighting for the same thing. When you say you don't like him as a leader, you're basically saying, oh, God, no, he's just a shitty leader. He's inept. Like a lot of the white supremacists obviously have turned on Trump as a leader because they think he isn't very good at this. You know, Like he hasn't gotten the wall built. He hasn't shut down immigration. He hasn't been able to do all the things that they wished he had done. Of course, he's also too solicitous of Israel, I suppose. So there are lots of things that Nazis and white supremacists don't like about his particular ability to get done. Not one of these white supremacists that I know of has actually come out and said that Donald Trump doesn't stand for the right things. They don't say that. They just say he's not very good at getting stuff done. In other words, he's a placeholder. We need someone who's better at this than him, not someone who's different than him, just someone who's more competent. That doesn't sound like criticism to me. That's the kind of praise that uh, ought to frighten us. But again, there are people who will try to give Trump cover from this, even in the midst of that. So you have Trump calling majority black nations shitholes. He literally says neo-Nazis and Kluxers are very fine people. Never mind Stephen Miller. Never mind what Trump and Stephen Miller are doing to U.S. immigration policy. Never mind Sebastian Gorka goodness, Trump even has retweeted neo-Nazi conspiracy theories. Hell, he more or less, in terms of talking about George Soros, is channeling the protocols of the elders of Zion. And we can never really get inside other people's heads. But hell, sometimes we got to try. What is going on in terms of the heads of Trump's defenders? 
I mean, you have it in black and white that the man has basically tried to ban Muslims from the country. He didn't set the fire, but he sure as hell is telling the arsonist to go put the fire in that movie theater. He's like, hey, here's the gasoline. And then he runs away. I just don't understand what it will take. Privilege and power, cloud reasoning. Their minds are warped. And I hate to use that phrase. I'm not a psychologist, but something's going on cognitively. Yeah, there is a lot of cognitive dissonance that people will throw up to avoid dealing with the evidence that's right in front of them. And it's not real hard to understand, I would imagine, psychologically. If you think about it, back when I was doing the work against David Duke in 90 and 91 in Louisiana, after that Senate race where Duke got six out of 10 white people to vote for him, 625,000 people approximately, all of them white except for like two black guys, because, you know, there's always two that are going to just do something wacky. But 625,000 or so white people vote for this guy who everybody had been told and informed was not just an ex-Klansman, right, but a a neo-Nazi, a white supremacist, actively still connect to the organized white supremacist movement. The evidence was overwhelming. Everybody saw it. No one was unaware of it. And yet six out of 10 white people voted for him. The challenge for us the next time he ran, because he did lose that race, thankfully, but not by much. The next time he ran in the governor's race, we knew that we were up against a pretty big problem because once you have voted for the Nazi, right, if you become convinced, let's say that you weren't convinced the first time because you weren't paying attention or you only saw the information two or three times, but now somebody really goes to work on you and you see a bunch of ads and you hear a tape recording in David Duke's own voice where he talks about America could be just like Nazi Germany if we just put the right package together, which we found a tape of him saying that and we released that. Imagine you're somebody who voted for Duke the first time and now someone presents you with just incontrovertible proof that you voted for a Nazi. What do you do if you're a sociopath or if you're a Nazi, you're not going to care and you're going to be like, hell yeah, that's the evidence I was looking for. Thank God he's a Nazi just like me. But if you're not a Nazi, right, you're going to jump through all kinds of hoops, especially if you're a quote unquote good person because you realize, holy shit, I voted for a Nazi. So it's a way to protect yourself from the recognition of what you did. The hope here is, and it was then as well, that even though you won't openly admit to your friends, to the public, that you made a horrible mistake and voted for a Nazi because that requires you to acknowledge you did something really horrible, that doesn't mean you won't go into the booth and vote differently the next time. And so in 91, our goal was not to, in the governor's race, get people to necessarily publicly repudiate Duke and, you know, and flagellate themselves in public. But the goal was just to say, look, y'all, don't do this shit again. And sadly, look, the majority of white people still voted for him again, but it went down from 60 to about 54%, 55%, which was just enough to make it a really resounding defeat for Duke, as opposed to the Senate race that had been closer. So the hope is you may not get people to acknowledge what's obvious, but hopefully you can get them to change their political behavior, whether that's 91 with David Duke or 2020 with Donald Trump. Because I know I'm feeling a little frustrated. I get lots of emails. I'm sure you do, too. Messages on Twitter and elsewhere. Please tell me what to do. What's going to happen next? And I don't want to scare them, but you and I and others have been predicting this. These plans, we talked about this last year, are put in motion well before they actually bear fruit, bear wicked, evil fruit of death and destruction. A lot more of this is going to happen because these folks have been planning this for a year or two or three years. So when you get those emails from folks, what should we be telling them to prepare them? I said today on Twitter, and I meant it, it wasn't hyperbolic, pick a side. Pick a side. And when I say pick a side, I mean you need to openly pick a side. It's not enough to pick the side and tell a handful of people or tell your family or think to yourself, I'm a good person. I'm in favor of anti-racism and a pluralistic society. I mean, pick a side 
and make sure that everyone in your life knows what side that is. Make sure your neighbors know. Make sure the other parents where your kids go to school know. Make sure your classmates know. All of your family knows. Come out and make it clear that fighting racism and fascism are central to everything that you believe. And so that means if you're someone who is putatively liberal or progressive, and let's say your issue that you've always worked on is the environment and ecological wisdom, and or let's say it's healthcare or getting better schools in your community, cool, keep doing that work. I, I'm not asking you to drop all that and just talk about race all the time, but make sure that as you talk about those things that, have, that you've cared about for so long, or if you're backing a particular candidate for office, whether that's president or city council, that you are demanding that that analysis that you bring and that others bring about the environment, about schools, about health care, about guns, about your candidate that you like, whatever it is, has an anti-racist lens attached to it. Because what this moment is telling us is that everything is about race. You know, folks always get honest and say, why do you make everything about race? I didn't make it all about race. People a long time ago made it all about race, and it still is. Everything that happens in this country, political, social, and cultural, has a racial component to it. And the quicker that people understand that and integrate that into their analysis and their understanding and their politics and their activism and just even the conversations they have with friends and family, the better off we're going to be. say that the United States was founded on the noble principles of freedom and liberty, I immediately know that they're delusional. The founding of this nation was rooted in violence, was rooted in theft and genocide and slavery. And the truth is that without any one of those things, without the violence, without the theft, without the genocide of millions of indigenous people, and without the forced labor of millions of enslaved Africans, the United States could not and would not exist, at least not as we know it today. And from 1492 until this very moment, racism and bigotry and the violent forms of intimidation that come with them have been deeply woven into the fabric of this place. Which brings me to our first story. Break it down. Late last night, a conservative Louisiana sheriff's deputy, Roy Matthews, turned his 21-year-old son, Holden Matthews, in for burning down three black churches there in St. Landry's Parish, which is about an hour west of Baton Rouge. The fires began on March 26 at St. Mary Baptist Church. They were followed by Greater Union Baptist Church on April 2nd, and then Mount Pleasant Baptist Church on April 4th, each burning completely to the ground. And what I'm about to say is why we rebuilt and relaunched the North Star. It's why I spend hours and hours in the studio five days a week writing and recording the Breakdowns podcast. Because I just studied every national news outlet's coverage of this case. And they each said some version of, we do not yet know the motive behind these church burnings. Let me help you with that. St. Landry's Parish has white churches all over the place, on every corner, rural, in town, in the town square. They're everywhere. New, old, Methodist churches, Episcopalian churches, Pentecostal churches, Catholic churches, 
the parish has several predominantly white Baptist churches. But Holden Matthews, who was known to frequent neo-Nazi and white supremacist websites, he didn't burn those churches down. He targeted and set ablaze three black churches and made sure they all burned straight to the ground. And this comes just weeks after a bigoted man targeted Muslims praying in a mosque in New Zealand. And just a few months after another bigot shot and killed nine Jewish senior citizens at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. And just a few years after another white supremacist targeted and killed the pastor and eight other men and women at a Bible study at a black church in Charleston, South Carolina. 2018 had more documented hate crimes than any year ever measured in generations, and they are continuing to increase this year. And here's what I know. Had this man been anything or anybody other than a white man, had he been an immigrant, had he been a refugee, had he been a Muslim, had he been black, the president of the United States would be tweeting about him as we speak. But we've come to understand very, very clearly that the bigotry and violence of white men is not even on the radar of the United States government. And consequently, the overwhelming majority of terrorist attacks in this country come from these men. And it's dangerous. After burning down his first black church, Holden Matthews waited a week, saw all the press coverage, and then burned down another. Then saw all of that press coverage and waited two more days and burned down another. And what we see, not just in the United States, but all over the world, is that white supremacists feel emboldened and empowered to not just think what they think, but to act on what they think. And one thing we must demand from each and every presidential candidate, and truthfully from every elected official on the local, state, and federal level, is their plan to confront white supremacy head on. We don't just want platitudes. Talk to us about your plan. Talk to us about your budget, your staff, and how you're going to wield your power to confront the very real threat of white supremacy. And we don't just need open forums and conversations on healing. This is domestic terrorism. And we must make it clear to people who want our vote that they have to show us our plans. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies. Owned by the richest dude in the world. That one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. Are all of these 
incidents, movements, the rise of some politicians in Europe, and then this increase that we've seen in hate crimes in the United States, anti-Semitic attacks, white supremacist attacks, are they all bound by some common thinking? Do they coordinate or is it that they share parts of an ideology that results in the kinds of overtly violent acts that we see in Christchurch or in the synagogue uh, massacre in Pittsburgh? What links them together? I think what I would say that the history can show us about this particular moment is that in the earlier period that I study, we can see two concurrent kinds of mobilization coming out of this movement. One of them is above ground, public facing, very performative. We can think about things like David Duke wearing nice suits and going on talk shows. What is your title? Grand Wizard or National Director. You are Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Right. Uh, He's such a nice-looking boy. <laughs> People sort of mounting political campaigns uh, successfully and unsuccessfully. Those draw in a lot of members. And then, at the same time, those same activists were also involved in fomenting a violent underground that included clan paramilitary training camps, um, assassination of enemies, the theft and distribution of millions of dollars to groups all around the country, and getting online on early computer network message boards in order to sort of begin the work of social network activism even before the rest of us had figured out what that was. So in the archive, what we can see is that those two waves of activity happened concurrently and included the same people. The other thing is that this movement has been using a strategy since the early 1980s called leaderless resistance. And the idea there is to organize in cells that can act in common cause and towards the same sort of targets without ties with one another or ties with movement leadership. Now, that strategy was implemented in part because activists were really frustrated with how many undercover ATF and FBI agents infiltrated the movement in the civil rights period, and in part to stymie court prosecution. But the longer legacy of leaderless resistance has been that this movement has disappeared as a movement. It's been able to present itself in many cases as the work of one lone gunman here, a lone wolf there, a few bad apples over there. And what happens is that we're not able to sort of create a public understanding of this as a coherent, connected set of events with a coherent political ideology. You can think of an act like the bombing of Oklahoma City, which is the largest mass violence on the American mainland between Pearl Harbor and 9-11, and still is understood by most people as the work of one or a few actors rather than as the coordinated violence that is the execution of this long and broad-based social movement. In this so-called manifesto that this shooter released, he expressed hope that the massacre would spark a gun control movement in the United States to intensify its actions and that it could ultimately lead to a civil war. And, and you point out that that's an idea that is torn directly from the pages of the Turner Diaries. Can you explain the Turner Diaries and the significance that it has within the white power movement? It's a dystopian or utopian novel that imagines how a small number of dedicated white power guerrilla warriors could sort of unseat world powers and eventually seize control of first the nation and then the world. And the novel sort of puts forward a bunch of strategies about how to do this. Hello. I'm William Pierce, and I'll be reading my book, The Turner Diaries, to you. Today, 
it finally began. After all these years of talking and nothing but talking, we have finally taken our first action. We are at war with the system, and it is no longer a war of words. It becomes sort of a manual, an ideological text, and even a lodestar of the movement that really does join a lot of people together. It came out in the late 70s and early 80s and appears in a whole bunch of significant places um, within the history of this movement, including things like Timothy McVeigh had it with him. I've said that over and over again, that I do not approve of the Oklahoma City bombing. Why not? It does not make sense under the present conditions that we have when there's no group capable of actually taking on the federal government and defeating it. But I do not believe that we are uh, in a revolutionary phase yet. I believe that the people have a lot of waking up and understanding to do first. And perhaps if the people do wake up and understand uh, what's happening and decide to take a hand to halt this process, to change the course of history, we may be able to avoid the sort of unpleasantness that uh, I imagined might take place in the Turner Diaries. Now, this book answers one fundamental question that many people have about this movement, which is, how could a very small number of people possibly hope to overthrow the most militarized superstate in the history of the world, being the modern United States, and then also hope to kind of foment this transnational white power movement? And it lays out a number of strategies by which this might happen. But the novel opens with exactly the scene that this gunman references, which is the kind of aftermath of a mass seizure of firearms, which people see as kind of a moment of awakening for a broad white populace. So this is the fundamental thing to understand about the Turner Diaries and about actions like the one in Christchurch. The violence itself is not supposed to be the end point of this kind of a political action. The violence is supposed to awaken a broader white public to rise up in guerrilla race war against first the nations and then kind of the rest of the world. And we should be really clear that the future envisioned by the Turner Diaries is fundamentally exceedingly violent. What happens in the book eventually is that the white revolution seizes control of the United States and from there is able to seize control of the world. And the end game of this in the novel is imagined as a total annihilation of all racial others, all of who they call race traitors, who are people who are in interracial marriages and other enemies, and then annihilation of all populations of color around the world. Why do you make a point to call it white power movement versus white nationalism or or white supremacy? So there's a couple of distinctions. The first one is that white supremacy is much bigger and much more common than what I'm calling white power activism. People might argue that huge percentages of our kind of systems of governance, our distribution of resources, different kinds of mechanisms that are routine in the United States are fundamentally white supremacist because of our nation's history. White supremacy is always also a um, ideology that's shared by many people who don't have extreme violent activism as their way of operating. So we need a, a word that's more 
discreet than that. And then the problem with white nationalism, white nationalism is correct from a technical standpoint. But the problem is that when you say white nationalism, I think a lot of people imagine a sort of overzealous patriotism. And that comes from the idea that the nation that they're talking about when they say white nationalism is going to be the United States or New Zealand or Australia. Actually, the nation imagined by white nationalism is all white people who are kind of racial compatriots. They mean the Aryan nation, the transnational white polity that they want to achieve, first by seizing white homelands and then by race war. Let's talk about the growing white nationalist movement here at home. To me, white supremacists, they're kind of like wild horses. I know they're around somewhere, like I know they exist, but I've never met one up close. So I start to question, are they really out there in the numbers that people say they are? But unlike a wild horse, I'm fairly certain I have been around a white supremacist and just didn't realize it because he wasn't acting all white supremacy at that moment. You know, sometimes a white supremacist is just like a guy with overactive B.O. buying Skittles at the 7-Eleven. You don't really know. Also, it depends on how we define up close. Like, I was once 10 feet from a white supremacist. He was driving a car through a crowd of people in Charlottesville, Virginia, trying to kill as many of us as he could. He only succeeded in killing one. So, come to think of it, 10 feet is about as close as I'd like to be to a white supremacist. That's about my max. While white nationalists and right-wing extremists did get credit, quote-unquote, for the terrorism in Charlottesville, our mainstream media often lets them off the hook in a lot of other ways. The media will give you wall-to-wall coverage of countless mass shootings in America, right? They, They will cover it. But they don't often let you know that All of the extremist killings in the U.S. in 2018 had links to right-wing extremism. That's right. All of them. Do you know how much all is? It's a lot. It's like most of them. Or even worse, it's like all of them. Every single mass shooting last year was connected to right-wing extremism. There were at least 50 extremist-related killings in 2018, according to the report, making it the fourth deadliest year on record for domestic extremist-related killings since 1970. These killings are getting more prevalent and more deadly, and they're all connected to right-wing extremists. So every time someone tries to tell you about eco-terrorists or, or the, the, the maniac socialists are coming to get us or, or how Antifa is just so dangerous, just remember that the left are not the ones walking into schools and bars and stuff and just massacring people. That is a distinctly right-wing hobby. And to get more specific, of those right-wing extremist killers, white supremacists were responsible for the great majority of the killings. So this is an entirely right-wing extremist issue, and mainly white supremacists. But it gets worse. The Intercept recently reported on terrorism's double standard, 
violent far-right extremists are rarely prosecuted as terrorists. An intercept analysis found that the Justice Department has routinely declined to bring terrorism charges against right-wing extremists, even when their alleged crimes meet the legal definition of domestic terrorism. Ideologically motivated acts that are harmful to human life and intended to intimidate civilians, influence policy, or change government conduct. So the entirety of extremist killers last year were right-wing. And yet right-wing extremist killers are rarely prosecuted as terrorists. In fact, the, uh, the Charlottesville white supremacists who drove through scores of people, killing one and maiming dozens of us, he was not charged for terrorism. He was charged with other things. He, but, but, you know, what could better fit the definition of terrorism than driving your car through people trying to kill them and trying to strike terror in the hearts of as many as possible because you want white supremacy and they don't want to let you have it. And also, you're not very bright. He, of course, was prosecuted and was locked away for a long time for other charges than terrorism. But our justice system is innately racist and angled toward helping out white right-wing extremists. There are also proven examples of white supremacists or nationalists infiltrating the military as well. It's an actual strategy that neo-Nazi groups have talked about in their membership, in their pamphlets or whatever the fuck they hand out. They tell members, join the military, learn how to kill people. And then when you come out, you can go back to being a civilian Nazi fuckhead. In a number of cases, white supremacists have served in the military and then turned to deadly violence afterwards. Examples include Wade Page, who opened fire at a Sikh temple in Wisconsin in 2012, and Timothy McVeigh, who bombed a federal building in Oklahoma City in 1995. More recently, a half dozen current and former service members were linked in 2017 to the Adam Waffa Division, a violent white supremacist group. The Military Times reported on a poll, they did that reporting on a poll given to active duty military that found white nationalism remains a problem for the military. 22% of soldiers polled said they had seen signs of white nationalism in their ranks. And that's self-reporting, so I'm sure it's even higher than that because I'm sure a lot of these soldiers are like, No, I didn't see any white nationalism. I don't know what you mean. In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly, indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, 
York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. Hi, Michael. It's AC Thompson from ProPublica and Frontline. I'm in Las Vegas and still interested in talking to you. So I to when I reach Hubsky, he'd been banned for life from Frontsite. He tells me he left Adam Wathen and has renounced Nazism. He won't go on camera for an interview. But using information from the chat logs, I'm able to identify other hate camp participants. One of them agrees to talk to me. He's a 20-something army veteran who asks me to call him Jeremiah. He came back from a combat tour damaged and angry. There were a lot of people that were disenchanted with the mission. I'd say about half the guys in my unit. I think a lot of guys, they're lost and they want hope. They're looking for answers. How, how big would you say the white nationalist movement is within the armed forces? There's a good amount of them. They keep quiet about it, especially when they're in. You can get in a lot of trouble. Going on to Facebook, I never mentioned the military. How did the group regard uh, combat veterans and service members? We definitely wanted to appeal to veterans. We would say they had the fighting spirit that the National Socialists of the 1920s had, that the people of the alt-right lack. Take an average 19-year-old from Adam Waffen. His only experience of war is video games versus some guy like me who knows how to handle himself in a war. People looked up to the military guys. You were at least using the training that they had given you to hit back at them. When you guys did do training, what kind of uh, training was it? What did you What did you learn? What kind of skills were shared? Going to the range, clearing rooms, medical, how to wage an effective insurgency. A lot of the Iraq and Afghan war vets, they took what they saw the Taliban or Al-Qaeda in Iraq doing and applied it to what's going on here. Jews were the number one enemy. We would say the Jews were the virus and the people of color, the homosexuals, they were the symptoms. By studying Adam Waffen chat logs, my colleagues and I develop a list of more than 80 Adam Waffen members. Seven of these men have military experience. I already know about Adam Waffen founder Brandon Russell and his time in the National Guard. But there are also three active duty soldiers or Marines and three military veterans. And my sources say there could be more. I want to better understand the link between Adam Waffen and the military. I go to see Professor Kathleen Ballou at the University of Chicago. 
She's been researching the history of the white power movement. We're looking at a current group called the Atomwaffen Division, and they are actively recruiting military members. Does that surprise you? Not at all. That's a strategy pioneered by the white power movement in the period of my study and continued throughout the post-Vietnam period. One thing to understand is that throughout American history, there's always a correlation between the aftermath of warfare and this kind of vigilante and revolutionary white power violence. So if you look, for instance, at the surges in Ku Klux Klan membership, they align more consistently with the return of veterans from combat and the aftermath of war than they do with anti-immigration, populism, economic hardship, or any of the other factors that historians have typically used to explain them nationalist fervor, populist movements, those are all worse predictors than the aftermath of war. tend to correspond then with with an upsurge in white power, white supremacist activity. Always. Yes. Ballou outlines a long history of military men who became key figures in the white power movement. George Lincoln Rockwell, World War II veteran and founder of the American Nazi Party. Richard Butler, World War II veteran and founder of the Aryan Nations. Louis Beam, Vietnam veteran and Grand Dragon of the KKK. Timothy McVeigh, Gulf War veteran and Oklahoma City bomber. It's important to remember, too, that returning veterans that join this movement and active duty troops, we're talking about a tiny, not even statistically significant percentage of veterans. But within this movement, those people who did serve are playing an enormously important role um, in instruction of weapons, in creating paramilitary activist um, mentality and training. When we speak to people involved in, in this movement today, they talk about leaderless resistance. Can you explain that to me? Sure. Leaderless resistance is basically what we would understand today as cell-style terrorism. The idea that you can recruit a small number of committed activists organize them, and then they will behave on their own in a cell without direct ties with movement leadership. If we think, for instance, about the Oklahoma City bombing, Timothy McVeigh is sort of the ideal soldier of leaderless resistance. He's an infantry unit and serves in the Gulf and is involved in white power groups while he's on post. He's consistently involved in this movement right up to the moment of the Oklahoma City bombing. We know that this is part of the white power movement and an act of leaderless resistance. But we have this memory of that as an act of one person. And as a result, I think we've never really delivered a decisive stop to this activism. That because we don't understand Oklahoma City as being an outgrowth of an organized movement that has been around for decades, that is modeling the military, that is involving military members, that the authorities have never really been able to put a stop to it. That's right. The military response to white power activism, like the court response to white power activism and the police response to white power activism, reflects the many ways that our society has not been prepared to deal with this kind of a movement. In Washington, a senior analyst at the Department of Homeland Security had tried to draw attention to some of these same concerns. In 2009, Daryl Johnson wrote an intelligence report looking at the rise of white supremacist groups and their connection to the military. The wars that have gone on in Afghanistan and Iraq, we had the rise of Islamophobia. That's a huge factor in both the anti-government groups and the militias that rally with firearms outside of mosques, but also the white supremacist groups that hate people of other nations and other skin colors. 
Johnson's report warned that the U.S. faced a growing terrorist threat from white supremacist and anti-government groups, and that these groups might recruit military veterans. What we've seen happen in the years since that report was released is basically everything that we had predicted has come to fruition. And it's actually worse than what we had anticipated. And I'm afraid that more law enforcement officers, more innocent civilians, more minorities and faith-based communities are going to be targeted and actually victimized by these violent offenders. It's like every month we have something, whether it's a a shooting, a stabbing, uh, even bombing starting to happen now. Today, Johnson's report might seem prophetic, but its publication nearly a decade ago provoked a political backlash from conservative lawmakers and veterans groups. The report was retracted and his unit disbanded. You know, our unit got shut down in 2009, and then the money started drying up. And uh, so these communities are basically left to fend for themselves. This threat is out there, and it's... After speaking to Johnson, I hear from two former Homeland Security officials who say the government remains under-resourced and out of position for dealing with the white supremacist threat. Hey, Jeremiah. Hey, how are you doing? I met Rafe out at a metal show in Texas. How'd that go? I was kind of surprised because they talk all this violent stuff online, but they were just kind of quietly hostile and seething. That figures. If they were wanting to do something violent, they wouldn't do it publicly. These guys, they're not stupid. They're not like these skinhead types. Jeremiah says I shouldn't underestimate rape. He has a direct relationship with Adam Waffen's intellectual leader, James Mason. Did you ever get to, to talk to Mason or meet him? We heard him over a couple of voice chats. I never met him in person, though. Rape and Mason had their own little thing. What kind of sense did you get of him when you were talking to him on those chats? I thought he was a genius. In propaganda videos, Adam Waffen say that Mason disappeared for 15 years until they located him. They pose for photos with Mason dressed in a Nazi uniform and celebrate their collaboration. I'm unable to find a phone number for Mason, but I learn he's living in the Denver area. Mason has no online profile, no social media, He doesn't even appear to have an email account. He spent time in a Colorado prison for menacing someone with a pistol. A bankruptcy filing from a few years ago reveals a solitary life, working at Kmart and living alone. I've gotten several possible addresses for Mason, and I begin to search neighborhoods for him. Then, I get a call. It's Mason, and he wants to talk to me. So how big do you think the, the Adam Waffen division is these days? How many members? I have how many? the foggiest idea. But they come visit you? you on a, on occasion, they will come through the territory, yes. I'm always happy to meet with them. Mason is evasive at first. I try to get him to talk about the killings and violence linked to Adam Waffen. I'm glad I didn't know about it, and I don't want to know. Because if I did know, I'd be involved in it. And I don't want to be involved in it. You don't want to go back to prison. I do not urge anybody to do anything like that. 
But when it gets done, I won't disown them. I kind of welcome the chaos. What did you think of James Fields, the guy who allegedly drove his car into the crowd in Charlottesville? I say, bless his heart, because he sure is in a jam. So you're sympathetic? Oh, very sympathetic. Totally sympathetic. To you, Fields is a hero? Yes. What do you think of Tim McVeigh? Another hero. The white race is in danger. And it's not by accident. It's driven. It's planned. Who's and planning it? The Jews. We know it's the Jews. I mean, we know that. We've been saying Mason has a lot more to say. The kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories I've come to expect from white supremacists. But I'm struck by what he says next. With uh, Trump winning that election by surprise, and it was a surprise... I now believe anything could be possible. After decades of railing against the government, Mason says Trump is giving him hope. As Trump says, and he has it printed right across the front of his hat, make America great again. In order to make America great again, you'd have to make America white again. Okay. It's interesting. We're headed for interesting times. We've just heard clips today starting with Intercepted laying out some of the parallels between Muslim radicals and white power radicals and the white supremacy that prevents many from being able to see the similarities. The Chauncey DeVega show spoke with Tim Wise about white supremacist opinions of Trump and what we need to do to stand up for anti-racism in our lives and activism. Sean King on The Breakdown discussed a recent series of black church burnings and what they say about the emboldened white power movement. Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight explained how white nationalism flourishes in our military as a recruiting ground for future white power terrorists. Intercepted talked with historian Kathleen Bellew about the tactics and strategies of the white power movement as well as the Turner Diaries, effectively the white power roadmap to world domination. And finally, we just heard Frontline speaking with former and current white power activists about how they target the military for recruiting and how Trump gives them hope for the future of white supremacy. We heard a bit of talk today about how the government stopped tracking right-wing radicalism, but members are going to be getting a a bonus episode with additional clips explaining how that went down in a lot more detail, as well as an in-depth look at the ideology that motivated the Christchurch mosque shooter. And now we will hear from you. Just so you know, the first message from Dave in Olympia starts in the middle as his first topic has been sort of awkwardly edited out for time, but the second topic he addresses is way too relevant to today's show to not play. commentary at the end of like the next up episode where you were talking about the value of representation both having those experiences and having the societal projection that 
minorities, people with different differing identities, that they matter, that they can really participate in society. He played a clip from Obama's inauguration, and a very excited woman said, "You just don't know what this means to me." I think it's very, very true that you and I don't know what it means to her. But tell you what, there are white people who do know what it means to her. I think white supremacists are keenly aware of what it means to even elect one black person to the office of president, even have one person uh, of color, one you know minority in a position of power. It sets an example and sends a message, and that message is almost impossible to silence. And it's almost impossible to, air quotes here, huge air quotes, put them back in their place after they've seen that sort of an example. And the quote that screams to my mind when you were saying this is over 100 years ago. So in 1900, Theodore Roosevelt invited Booker Washington to the White House for dinner and their families had a lovely dinner by all respects and it was a whole thing. But... People lost their shit. And the quote that always just like burned itself into my soul, it was a representative. It was an elected U.S. representative. And he said that we're going to have to kill a thousand, uh, I'm sure he said N-word, uh, to put them back in their place now. It was crystal clear what this meant. It meant that other Black people would see this example and would come to believe that they had worth. So not every white person is completely unaware of what it means to elect a black person. As always, Jay, stay awesome. Hey, Jay, it's Alan, your member from Connecticut, calling in uh, not to let this die. I have to respond to you and Nick's comments regarding algorithms. I have some serious concerns with algorithms overall. Algorithms, even the best written, most detailed, most honest, most unbiased algorithm is based on data. And data is constantly flawed. And I'm going to give two what I think are good examples, one from healthcare and one from criminal justice, right? And and I think everyone agrees that, that the example used in, in the earlier shows about the algorithms for criminal justice is flawed. But but let's take that a step further, right? Right now, the data is based upon probably not even arrests, but convictions, right? So you not only have to be arrested for a specific crime, but convicted for a crime to enter that data pool that that algorithm would potentially pull from. And let's face it, it's not a fair system as it is now. Therefore, that data is significantly flawed. And we're not even talking about all the other aspects that never even make it to an arrest, other other crimes that are committed, whether it's running a red light or someone stealing a box of paper clips to fi finish their kid's school project at home from school from work, whatever those things are, your data is flawed. And without a full set of data, you're not going to possibly have an accurate algorithm. And the same is true with the medical aspect of an algorithm. 
Not everyone goes to the doctor all the time to get the data that is needed. And even if they did, I work for a health center where every year we have to do a report to the federal government for unified data standards. And it is flawed every year. We go back and we try to fix the data and correct it and change the provider's way of entering the system into the computers because not everybody does it the same way. They, they put it in box A instead of box B. And it, it's a constant monitoring of the data to get it to be as accurate as possible. And even with all the work we do with that, just within our own organization, we're not consistent. Imagine across other organizations and across the country, let alone across the world. So so the data is flawed to begin with. So if you're going to use an algorithm, not only do you have to have clarity as to the algorithm, you need the education on where the data is coming from and how good that data is or isn't and what the flaws on that data may be. That is as crucial as understanding how the algorithm pulls from that data. Because if you don't have the understanding of where the base data is, even the best understanding about the algorithm is going to be flawed. So anyway, signing off from Connecticut. Have a great day. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in regarding John from Maryland calling in in his voicemail. And I just want to say to John, I so appreciate you calling in. I, too, remember when Wade would call in, and I was so looking forward to those opinions and his feedback and your feedback. And I encourage you to call back more with even just comments or feedback about episodes. I think it's an important balance to the show. And I'd love to hear more reactions from conservatives on certain points and, and issues and discussions. I'd, I'd love for that to happen. So um, I encourage you, John, and anyone else to, to call in. Thanks. Stay awesome. Hey, Jay, it's Abdul, uh, your listener from Inside the Beltway. I am calling in response to Corey from New Jersey's voice message. Corey, I am so happy that you were able to find some hope and some optimism for everything. Hopelessness and despair are, of course, leading uh, causes, symptoms of depression. And I think our political system is set up to produce those feelings in us. And we got to keep fighting and fighting and fighting against that. Any political system that does not produce optimism or hope in people is a fundamentally broken system. And that's what we're dealing with here. Human beings are fundamentally social animals. We're not supposed to be out here trying to do any of this shit alone. Any of this. Uh, by ourselves. We are supposed to be able to take care of one another and look after one another. And the politics that this country has been selling, uh, certainly in my lifetime since the 80s with Reagan, but probably for its entire history, is the politics of individualism, uh, the politics of the rugged individual. I got to look out for myself, number one. And that is precisely the kind of politics that supports the system of greed, this neo-feudal system where we have a very small number of people at the top who live in wealth and luxury and the rest of us are just at the bottom toiling and having all of the benefits of our labor siphoned upwards into this very tiny elite. 
I say all of this not because we are going to be able to fix the system right now, and certainly I don't expect you or me or Jay to fix it by ourselves, but I think that understanding that we feel the way we feel, that our feelings are legitimate and that our feelings are caused by the political system that governs our lives will hopefully take you one tiny step closer to feeling better, knowing that you're not alone, um, knowing that you don't have to do any of this alone, and that precisely the more you engage with other people, the more you take care of others, and the more you allow others to take care of you, the better you'll feel in the end. Take care of yourself, Corey. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, just to quickly get on Abdul's bandwagon to say to Corey and everyone else listening, I totally endorse the idea of getting out, getting active, meeting people in your community, uh, having some sort of outlet for any any level of political frustration or depression you may be having. Uh, I, I can vouch for the fact that this show is actually and has been for a decade and a half almost my outlet for political frustration it's not exactly the you know go find people in your community and work with them sort of message that that abdul is is sharing and and i'm endorsing but uh it, it sort of goes to show that there's a lot of different ways you can do this sort of thing you can do some things on your own uh, really preferably though if you can find people to do it with i mean creating community uh being involved in something classically thinking globally and acting locally you know it's not just how to fix the world it's also how to make your life personally better and to get you out of a mental funk so totally on board with all of that just wanted to add my two cents and secondly as long as we're on the topic of white supremacy i want to talk about a a different area of it i want to talk about the the elections, the Trump voters, I'm not at all saying that Trump voters are analogous to white power activists or anything like that. We're, we're talking about a different section, a different sector of racism and white supremacy. I just I've been having this thought recently that I want to share with you, and this is as good of a opportunity as I've had in a while. So the demographers, the the election analysts, everyone seems to be baffled at this small section of people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump because they think, okay, if we if we take it as granted that Trump is basically racism incarnate, then how could you have possibly voted for the first black president and then voted for racism incarnate? And no one can wrap their minds around this. And I have a theory I'm I'm very confident in this theory, though I have uh, no data to back it up. I haven't, but no one. I, I feel like no one's asking these questions, or they wouldn't even know how to ask the questions of these voters. But let me tell you the theory, and you can take it however you like to take it. So this is based on 
um, or it, it draws on some some very wise words I heard from so uh, Amanda who works on the show. Her grandmother had some really interesting thoughts on race. She was, I believe, ninety four years old when she passed away. She grew uh, grew up in the South in Georgia and was a an FDR Democrat her whole life. So she was like the most progressive. 90 plus year old woman who grew up in the South you would ever meet, which means she was still pretty racist, you know, a fair amount of the time. But as I said, about as progressive as you could uh, ever hope for her to be. And she had this really interesting insight about race. She said, you know, uh, people think that all the Southerners are racist and all that. But, you know, the truth is we have black people around us all the time. We have black people who work in our homes and raise our children and, and, you know, we see them. They're like a part of our lives on a regular basis. And so what I think is true is that in the South, we hate the group, you know, admittedly. A lot of people in, in the South hate black people as a group, but because we know so many of them individually, we love the individual. So, so there are these people who hate the entire black race with a few exceptions, and those exceptions are all the black people they've ever met in person in real life, people they work with, people who, you know, helped raise their kids or the the nanny who helped raise them when they were growing up, you know, all those kinds of relationships that are, you know, fraught with complications, but, you know, take it for what it's worth. So she said, you know, in the South, I think we we hate the group, but love the individual. But in the North, they tend to love the group or at least say that they do. They say, no, 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 we're not racist. You know, we love black people. We, we want equality and all that. But because you, you interact in the North, you interact with people of color. She wouldn't have used the phrase people of color because you interact with people of color so much less often that when you come across one, you're actually more likely to dislike them, to distrust them than in the South where, we, you know, we interact with them all the time. So in the South... We hate the group, love the individual. In the North, you love the group and hate the individual. And I thought, yeah, that, that's that's just like a really interesting insight on the effects of, to whatever degree there was integration, just from being near nearby. Even if the schools were segregated, even if the churches were segregated, you're still going to run into people more often. You're still going to, you know, conduct business with people and and have more interactions than in places where there just aren't as many black people. So I thought that was that was an interesting insight. And so I got thinking about these these voters who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump and and you know and then beyond just like the surface level analysis of that, deeper research shows that those people have terrible opinions about race. They really seem to be actual racists. So, so then everyone's completely baffled at, then why in the world would they have voted for Obama? And here is my theory. My theory is that voting for Obama was not voting for a black guy. It was voting for a specific black guy who they came to know through the campaign process. Just like as Amanda's grandmother described, you can hate the group but like the individual. 
plenty of people could have held on to plenty of their racism against black people as a group and then met Barack Obama and his family and his policies and his political campaign and said, you know what? He's one of the good ones. I actually, I, I like him. I still don't like, you know, the group probably, even if they wouldn't admit that out loud, but th- they could have those, those feelings toward the group and think, no, but you know what? He's different. I like him. So for all these analysts who are, who are going around and have for three years, two years now been baffled at, at this, this small contingent of people who switched from one to the other. This theory of mine is the best I have ever heard, mostly because no one else has any theories whatsoever. They're, they're just vocally baffled by it. So that's my theory. Let me know what you think. Uh, if you have thoughts on that or anything else, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. 